Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. This week's edition of the show is a wine special. We'll be hearing what is new in French wines. I would say where French wine is and where it's going is toward this notion that quality really does pay. Then we cross over to Georgia as the country is only just realizing how old its wine culture is. In 2015, archaeologists examined samples from two Stone Age sites south of Georgian capital, Tbilisi. In these they found tartaric acid, the chemical fingerprint of wine residues, in fragments of pottery that dated back 8,000 years. And here in London we ask how you can create a successful wine bar. All that here on the menu on Monocle Radio. While France is one of the world's top wine countries, it doesn't mean that its viticulture is stuck in the past. American James Beard winning author John Bonnet demonstrates the astonishing variety and level of reinvention in his new two-book boxed set, The New French Wine, redefining the world's greatest wine culture. It's said to be the first release of its kind, a definitive guide to contemporary French wines and producers. John John joined me on the line to tell us more and to suggest which wines are worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, uh, so the scope, we literally, uh, it's uh, the quote-unquote book is two books, is two volumes, pushing toward 900 pages, which is quite a lot, uh, but France is very much uh, the soul of the world's wine culture. Uh, It is still the reference point for so much of the wine that's made anywhere in the world, literally to the point of, if you think about Pinot Noir, Cabernet Sauvignon, the, the grapes that people use, the, these are all these are all French. The, the origin stories for so much of wine culture as we define it, not the original sort of going back into, you know, thousands and thousands of years, but modern wine culture is based on the quality of France and on the culture of wine in France. And so trying to uncover that and to literally uh, get through every one of the wine regions of France was not small, uh, and it is a lot to cover. But at the same time, uh, what I discovered when I started spending a lot of time in the French countryside is that French wine, as it was 20 years ago, uh, is so different from what French wine is today and what it's become that it needed it needed the story told even if the story was a very big one what's happened in the last 20 years for example obviously it's a lengthy story but how would you summarize it what exactly has been happening in france it it is it is a lot um and the way i i often describe it is that in almost every region of france uh that produces wine there has been a quality revolution not all the same uh because the the, the types of wine are so diverse there, but uh, but you see that this is really the first time, arguably since the 19th century, since right before the uh, the vine louse known as phylloxera really wiped out much of the world's wine industry in the late 19th century. This is the first time that that quality has been considered. Uh, absolutely paramount. This is this is no longer just producing table wines. That part of the French industry has certainly hasn't gone away. But as uh, I think I say in the book numerous times, you know, other people can do it cheaper and uh, of you know 
similarly passable quality. So what's happened is that, you know, even what were considered to be modest wines in France, let's take Muscadet uh, in the Western Loire, which uh, was often considered to be kind of a, a nice, simple wine you drink with oysters and it was refreshing. It wasn't meant to be serious, but you look at it today and they're, they've divided the region into uh, 10 crews. So you can talk about it the way you talk about Burgundy and specific terroirs. Um, this, the sheer quality of winemaking there is exponentially better than it was, say, 15 years ago. And this has become a, a really serious, collectible, important wine. Um, not mercifully that expensive yet, um, but it's simply... A, a fundamental difference in how its producers and the the people who support them see the quality they're producing. And what is the role climate change plays in all this? I'm speaking to you from London and we're getting some great wines from England now, for example, but how is all that reflected in France? It is another one of those profound changes that has taken place, which is to say, historically for a thousand years, the notion of viticulture in France, the way that French farmers thought about wine was that you would never have enough sunlight, that your deficiency was was adequate ripening, adequate uh, warmth and heat. Uh, and you were struggling always to get enough, enough sun to ripen the grapes and make good wine. And really, almost within 10 years, and you, you look at the different studies that have been done, of which there are quite a lot, and the incremental uh, ripeness has been going up in a in a small way for a while, but really within ten years, the the philosophical view of growing and ripening wine grapes in France has completely transformed to something much more like what it is in California, where your issue is not getting too much ripeness and not getting too much sun. And so, all of these regions that that existed based on the presumption that they would never get enough ripeness. Take champagne, for instance, where the way you make champagne, you you pick grapes that aren't really fully ripe, and then you have to make them sparkling, and you have to add sugar, and you have to do all these things to, to get it to a place where the wine is really interesting and of quality. And that has gone from the default, let's say, in the beginning of the 2000s to now, uh, you can make fully ripe still wine, to your point about England, uh, same thing happening in England and Champagne, which have very, very similar, uh, both soils, uh, but also climates, to growing very ripe, if not too ripe, uh, still wines that completely change the way you think about farming, completely change the way you think about winemaking, change the way that the the marginality of France, which was always considered to be its its selling point for wine, is going to be different now. You know, there's there's going to have to be fundamental shifts in making sure that that the sun doesn't uh, give you too much of a good thing, essentially. So you know, there's there's a there's always a a scary headline that you know you know there's going to be no more Pinot Noir in Burgundy, or you're going to have to move Champagne to Denmark, um, which are excessive. But you do look at the data. And you see that farmers in France are having to make real changes and learn how to farm like they're in much warmer parts of the world. Now, what does the future of French wine look like to you? So I think there is always this question with France of whether it is producing at its full capabilities. And if you look, for instance, the Judgment of Paris in 1976, which is when California wines bested French wines, that was because... French wine had sort of fallen into a a torpor. It had it had it had lost its sense of quality. It's not that the terroir wasn't there. It's not the the potential wasn't there, but just 
you know, farmers were more interested in quick profit and high yields, and there just wasn't a lot of of quality control. And uh, them losing to California forced the French to a bit of a reckoning and and made them think seriously about quality. And what I would argue is that since the late 1990s, that has happened again uh, for very different reasons. I think simply the rest of the world could also make very good, very high quality wine. I think Italy and Spain gave France a very strong run for its money to say nothing of California or Australia elsewhere. Uh, But also the style of wine really changed starting in the early 2000s globally, where instead of these big sort of high alcohol oaky wines being important and highly scored, people were looking for more nuanced wines, wines that showed their origins more transparently. And that's what France at its best does like no one else can. And so I would say where French wine is and where it's going is toward this notion that quality really does pay. That if you if you make champagnes with specificity with that from single villages and single vineyards, and you you look at individual champagne producers and not big houses, you look at Beaujolais, which again, fifteen years ago, all, all anyone thought about was Beaujolais Nouveau and kind of a you know, one night of partying in November. And now Beaujolais is essentially the new Burgundy. It's, uh, you know, you you drink from single vineyards, you drink from individual villages, and you you now collect Beaujolais, which is not something anyone ever did. Uh, that really the, uh, you know, France is poised to do what it does best, which is to make exceptional wine that on balance is a great value uh, because just literally the cost of production in France is still relatively modest compared to most places in the world. And the things that people have historically really loved about French wine are there and maybe just a little bit more magnified and a little more specific. Just finally, John, before I let you go, I'm wondering, can you give us any wine recommendations, any any wines that you think nicely exemplify what we have been talking about so far that nicely showcase how French wines have been changing? Sure. Uh, so I will go back to two of the, the things that I mentioned. Uh, I don't want to dive too far into individual producers just because you never know which wine shop you're going to walk into and what they'll have. But uh, for red wine, Beaujolais, for white wine, Muscadet. And I would say if you look not even too hard, you can find exceptional examples of what's called Cru Beaujolais. So one, one of the 10 named villages. Uh, and you can find them from an individual vineyard like Cotepi or um, Chassignol, or there's a whole bunch of them. And same thing in Muscadet. You can look for individual villages now, uh, Monier Saint-Fiac, uh, Le Palette. But even if you just look for something like, say, Claude de Briord from uh, de Mendela Pepier, which is a long-standing, really high-quality organic producer, these are wines that drink like some of the best wines in the world, and you're generally going to be finding them for under 30 pounds. John Bonnet there, he has just released the two-book boxed set, The New French Wine, Redefining the World's Greatest Wine Culture. You are with Monocle Radio. From France to Georgia, a new archaeological discovery has found that winemaking in the region dates back over 8,000 years. Georgia, known for its so-called tamadas or wine toastmasters, has long been celebrated for its viticulture. Now a new finding sheds light on the nation's ancient traditions. Sally Howard tells us more.
In 2015, archaeologists examined samples from two Stone Age sites south of Georgian capital, Tbilisi. In these, they found tartaric acid, the chemical fingerprint of wine residues, in fragments of pottery that dated back 8,000 years. It was a finding that turned the global spotlight on Georgian wine, says local and family winemaker Tamar Bubalishvili. It's like uh, after 2015, uh, when they discovered this uh, clay vessel and uh, the remains of the wine and the grapes uh, in the south part of Georgia, it was in Dmanisi. We officially became kind of cradle of uh, winemaking uh, because it uh, was dated back to 8,000 years old, these uh, grapes and uh, remains of the wine. It, of course, had an influence on the world and uh, Georgia became popular as a tourist destination and also like uh, Georgian wine became more popular. So after that, the production of wine grew and we export wine in different countries like uh, not only in Russia but uh, in China, in Kazakhstan, in Ukraine, in, uh, in other European countries as well. So, yeah. It's still popular, we have big wine companies, wine sellers, and also, of course, the small ones from small family businesses, uh, which produces their own homemade wine. Georgia exported 107 million bottles of wine, up from 23 million bottles in 2012. Someone who is benefiting from this increasing popularity is Giorgio Gardash-Lavili, his vineyard, located in Kondali village in the Kakheti wine region, has been owned by his family for five generations, but until now only produce wine for family use. Giorgio talks to me from his hand-built wine cellar. In 2018, he decided to train himself in the family craft of winemaking. He makes the wine in traditional kaveri, or clay vessels, to profit from this unlikely Georgian wine boom. And, and is he doing that because for the traditional ways or because the market likes bio? Because of the market, market and also for the traditional. Tradition, yeah, both. Yeah, yeah, both, of course. Yeah. Because like, uh, now it's uh, becoming more and more, like, of course, bio mm. wines are becoming more and more popular and mm. nobody wants to, like, it's more... It's better for the health, better taste, uh, and uh, better for everything. Mm. So it's becoming more and more popular, mm. of course. And where does he sell his wines? Uh, in dead countries. Ah, oh, <laughs> those are the countries. Yes. <laughs> 5,000 bottles one year, oh. maximum. So oh, okay. 5,000 bottles. So, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so what do we have here? We have um, Export, Swedish, yeah. English... Um, Australian, French, French uh, uh, USA, Germany, Netherlands, Rotterdam, Netherlands. No, Russia. That's one more. The flag, flag's there, but that's oh. going. Okay. Asia, Romania, if they give me hundred euro for per bottle, I wouldn't uh, send it. In 2022, Russia bought 64 percent of Georgia's wine exports. It's a figure that's rising, as other wine-producing nations restrict their exports to the warring state. But despite their government's willingness, 
Many proud, small Georgian producers such as Giorgio refused to sell wine to Russia. Thankfully, business is good for Giorgio. Northern Europeans and Japanese consumers too are getting a taste for his organic vintages. Later that day, I headed to Kaverli, a bucolic East Georgian village where Vareko Matsashuli, a former Tbilisi city dweller, lays a table for guests. There is chicken and mountain cheese, there are pickled bladdernut flowers, and there are jugs, two of the novice winemaker's own amber wine. Are wine grapes hard to grow? Are they when you do? Romeli. So it's a Katzitelli, I told you. This is one of the grape varieties which is the most popular and uh, they make ember wine from there. And uh, uh, they also have uh, three different varieties also close uh, just, uh, next uh, to this uh, house. So it's Kisi, Manawi and uh, this is uh, the grape variety, Uri, which is uh, um, red grapes, mm. but it's mainly for the. So it's uh, it's mainly used for the table, like, uh, to, to have it um, eating grapes. A, yeah, yeah. yeah. Saying toast is another ancient feature of Georgia, with tamadas or toastmasters leading Georgians in raising their glasses to good health and to victory. Varico welcomes summer visitors to her small holding and. As the first grapes of the new season are staked in the adjacent field, she toasts to business success. Viticulture is a bright hope for a Georgian economy that's seen its growth rate slow in recent months, thanks to oil and food prices and a reduction in tourists caused by the war in Ukraine. In Kondali, Giorgio also raises his glass in a toast to peace. He hopes for respite from Russian aggression, so businesses such as his, profiting from the Georgian wine renaissance, can thrive. Winemaking is a hard but happy life, and for the people of Georgia it's about to get even more exciting. Thanks to Sally Howard for the report. Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. Belgium has destroyed a large shipment of American beer after objecting to its slogan that it is the champagne of beers. Belgian authorities crushed 2,352 cans of Miller High Life after concluding that they were labelled improperly. The EU has strict rules for the protected origin of champagne and the term can only be used on bottles of the sparkling wine that are made using traditional methods in the Champagne region of France. The frequent consumption of fried foods, especially fried potatoes, is linked with a higher risk of anxiety and depression according to a research team in Hangzhou, China. Fried foods are already known to affect physical health conditions such as high blood pressure and obesity. Therefore, the results of these findings could open an avenue in the significance of reducing fried food consumption for mental health, the paper published in the Proceedings of the National Sciences Journal stated. 
However, experts say it's too early to tell whether the foods were driving the issues or if people experiencing mental health problems turn to certain foods for comfort and convenience. Workers at a Bordeaux vineyard brought by a Chinese investor have revolted against their directors because of harsh working conditions. The farmers at Chateau Lateau were expected to work from 9am until 9pm six days a week, almost twice the French statutory 35-hour week. According to local media, the angry employees used their spades to destroy newly installed devices which monitored their 12-hour days. Observers say the incident highlights a clash of cultures, which could explain the end of a Chinese investment boom in the region. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle Radio. A successful bar can become quite an asset for a neighbourhood and someone who has managed to launch not one but two such places is Sunny Hodge. The bars Diogenes, the Dock and Aspen and Mersault have both rooted themselves in the local communities in London. What has also made these places special is their demystifying approach to wine, which is not a surprise as Sunny is a self-taught wine expert. So what makes for a successful bar and what's happening in the world of wines more widely? Let's hear from Sunny now. So initially, the uh, the want to go into wine came from my lack of understanding of wine. Uh, I studied engineering back in the day. Uh, everything within hospitality made logical sense except for wine. So that was like my weakness. Uh, in trying to make it logical and tangible through a lot of autodidactic learning, uh, reading journals, new research, uh, through all of that, I sort of found a way to make it all work without the romance and learning tons of history uh, and making it very, very relevant. Uh, So lots of, lots of self-learning. The WSET helped, I guess, fill in gaps, but it didn't explain a lot of things that I wanted to speak about and help others understand. But let's talk about the mainstream wine culture, considering your background in engineering and and the approach you took in teaching yourself about wines. What are your thoughts about the mainstream wine culture and the shops and what people often talk about when they are serving wines to you? Mm, So I think we've spoken about wine for such a long time using the same type of language, mainly because we haven't fully understood it and there's a lot to understand to be able to portray to customers or to your waiter uh, at wine wine bars or, or restaurants so I think because it's such a complex field like art I liken wine to art a lot uh, it becomes really difficult to talk about it outside of stories and sales pitches and I believe that is how wine has been spoken about for a long long time we dwell on stories about the winemakers uh, talking about uh minerals and uh and materials in the soil um but it doesn't help us understand what's in the glass uh what i believe also is that wine consumption is very different now and it will be very different in the future to what it has been before uh the generation of people buying the big prestigious chateaus and big super tuscan wines they won't be around for much much longer and i think we need to rethink how we talk about wine just like any other any other subject or food and drink for the generations that are that are ahead for us 
Tell me more about your thoughts. Why do you think the world of wine is changing so much? Uh, well, wine before was a very, I guess, prestigious thing in the, in the high-end environment. Those sort of trophy wines, I think, will still be sold, but maybe not to the quantities that they were before. The future of food and drink from a consumer side and a producer side is very different to what it used to be back in the day. What excites you in wines at the moment? Currently, I think the, mo the two most exciting things for me are the effects of global warming uh, on wine regions. What's going, what's coming. It's exciting because, as we touched on earlier, the generation of wine drinkers are changing. And with that, there are actually new areas for those generations of wine drinkers to become accustomed to and to learn about. Uh, so global warming's as bad as it is, it is happening and it is changing wines humongously. And I think the second thing which I... I predict to be bigger, but it's just a small thing now, is the use of hybrid species uh, in the production of wine. So using non-wine species like Vitis vinifera or hybrid species with half Vitis vinifera and some other varietals to make tougher vines. Uh, I believe that's the future because it allows us to farm easier without the use of chemicals and to produce wine for broader, larger markets without such intensive farming. Those regions you mentioned, obviously, England is a place that's been discussed widely for, for quite a few years already, and I've been hearing something about Denmark. But what other places would you like to mention, thanks to climate change, which areas are becoming places for wine? East, Eastern Europe is blowing up. So, like, we're, we've imported a ton of wine from Poland. We've used two producers, Vinicius Turnau and Vinica Wieliszka, Poland is blowing up and they're producing incredible stuff more consistently. So Eastern Europe is definitely uh, an area to keep an eye on. And places like the Czech Republic and Slovakia have been producing phenomenal wines for a long, long time. We just, we just don't know about it yet. Can you give us some wine recommendations? What should our listeners go and try from those places? From those areas? I, I think in, in the UK, it's quite tough to get your hands on Polish wine. But there's a lot of Czech wines coming from South Moravia that are phenomenal. Uh, winemakers like Peter Korab are farming using biodynamic principles, really, really clean, non-crazy, funky, natural wine styles, super accessible, opulent styles of wines. Uh, so like South Moravia and the Czech Republic consistently are making some really, really good stuff. And obviously many of our listeners are not in the UK, so they may be able to get a hold of Polish wine. So what from there? We're currently working with Vinicza Wieliszka. Adnieszka and Piotrek are the winemakers. Uh, they are phenomenal. So they're farming on above old salt mines. So some of the largest salt mines in Europe, very infertile soils, promote really, really deep root growth. They're farming biodynamically in an area which is really tricky uh, to farm in that way. Uh, Agnieszka was a consultant. I think she is still a consultant for Demeter, which is like the largest, uh, one of the largest governing bodies for biodynamics. So Wienke uh, Wieliszka in Poland are great. They're, they're making really, really clean, good examples of natural wines. Sonny, tell us about your two locations. I think it's interesting that Even though they are slightly different, they also share a lot. They have a lot in common, and one of, one of that is, is their locations. They both have been pubs before. Yeah, precisely. So both have been pubs that have been taken over by developers. Uh, they've wanted to turn those pubs completely into the flats. The local area have been up in arms and not allowed it to happen on the ground floors. Uh, hence, 
above us in both locations are uh, a series of flats and we have taken on the ground in the cellar. Um, they have often sat vacant for three to four years, just sitting there un unsold, uh, unrented and unused. Um, mainly because there are not, when you convert a big pub into a tiny pub with just the ground floor, not many people can utilize uh, that well financially. There's not much you can do in terms of covers. Uh, when you install the bar, half of your covers are gone. And then what do you do with this space? So they've been sitting empty for a while, which meant that we could come along, create like a, a higher end table service, wine led setup uh, and make them successful. Amazing. I'm wondering, do you want to tell us what you have learned about the industry of running wine shops and bars over the years so far? What have been, I know you've been going through some quite interesting times, including yeah. the pandemic. What have you learned? Learning is never ending, and I think my team will vouch for that as well. There's never, there's never a day that goes by where we haven't learnt something from an incident or something that's come up. I think if there's one thing I've learnt is to keep fluid and flexible. So sometimes, especially with brands with such strong, clear ideals, uh, you can very easily go in one direction and continue in the dire that direction regardless of what's happening around you in the world, and then realize that that may not be the place where you wanted to end up, but mainly because the area around you has changed and you just haven't realized it because you've been so focused on that end goal. So I think following the direction you want to take, but always being observant to the changing world around you uh, has been my biggest learning because I think for the first two, three years, during the pandemic we were flexible we were surviving everything everything was going well but i think there was a lot of stuff that was changing at stanley that i wasn't conscious was not necessarily beneficial to the direction that our brands were going so now every step towards the direction we want to take i have to take a look around assess and think is this going to work within this new environment be it an economic environment a cultural environment or even local stuff that's happening around the bars Sonny Hodge there, he's the founder of two wine bars in London, Diogenes the Dog and Aspen and Mersault. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also remember our spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. Subscribe now. I am Marcus Hippi. The programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio manager was Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Adele with I Drink Wine. Thanks for listening and until next week. You better believe in trying, trying. to keep clear.